Welcome to the Metro Church Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by this message. For more information about Metro Church, visit our website at metrochurch.org.au. We've been in a series called Build Again because I believe that right now lots of people need to get their focus off what's been destroyed or taken away, what has been removed from out of their life and need to start thinking again about now's the time you build. See, you don't build when the thing's built. I know that's obvious, uh, but most building sites I've been on are quite messy. Most building sites I go to don't look at all like anything great is about to happen. And yet you come back later when it's finished and we'll go, wow, look what happened out of that mess. And the story of Nehemiah, that's where we've been studying for this entire uh, last three weeks. And this is the fourth. And we've been going through this whole thing of the book of Nehemiah, who's a builder called by God. But he's not a pastor. He's not a Levite. He's not somebody that's previously had great position. And I love that because I love the fact that God does not always choose the people that everyone else would pick. When God wanted to bring a revival to Samaria, He never chose one of the apostles, John, Peter, James, any one of those 12. He never picked one of those people, but He picked a guy who was a part of the host team, the usher team, if you like, somebody whose first job in the church is simply handing out food to people that uh, don't have any family to care for them. And so God chose someone like that. So I love the fact that God can choose people like you and I that are so ordinary in so many ways. And yet outside of that, God says, I've got something I want you to do. I've got something I've got for you to be a part of. Never dismiss what God can do in your life because of your background. I love that message from uh, Maradelli a little bit earlier on. You know, growing up in a family, we can take the imprint of that family as though that's our capacity. And yet then we come to Christ and we're born again. And the Holy Spirit brings a new line of DNA into our life, brings a new line, if you like, of heritage to us. And we begin to live out of that and not live out of what we grew up with or our insecurities or our backgrounds, our limitations, but we start to live out of something of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that this is the hour for greatness. I really do. I've never lost my confidence at all that God would always take His church into something great. God would always do something phenomenal. God is not on pause just because the world is. God is not on pause. His plans know no limitation. His plans know no hindrance. It is impossible. Matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah says, Who can stay the hand of the Lord or say unto him, What doest thou? In other words, who can stop God achieving what God wants to do? And so we're going to dig into this together tonight for a little while. And I trust it will challenge your heart and just energize you in a time of rubble, in a time of things being broken down, in a time of stuff looking messy. I pray it will challenge you now. Don't wait for everything to get right before you start acting right, start doing it now. Start believing now. This phrase got into my heart yesterday when I was in prayer, that faith finds its greatest expression in battles. 
Faith is for battles. Faith is not for good times. Faith is for the tough times of life. And I want you and I to, to really tell whoever you are, wherever you are, I want you no matter who you are, because you might go, but Jeff, I'm nobody. I'm not anything. But I thank God for people like Philip, the Scripture says. They said, search out men of faith and people filled with the Holy Spirit whom we may appoint. And this guy is a man of faith, though his job seems to have no need for faith in its, in its action. All he does is hand out food to people that don't have family. You wouldn't think that would require faith. But see, God's never got his eye just on where you are. He's always got his eye on something further on. Why ask for men of faith and fill with the Holy Spirit? Except that after he's started to fulfill this ministry, he's going to step into a revival in Samaria. Then he's going to meet the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, one of the personal assistants to the queen of Ethiopia, and all the stuff that would result out of that. I want you to understand tonight that no matter who you are or where you are, if you're a believer, God has his hand on you for something great. Amen. Lessons from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to go through the first six. Nehemiah chapter 1 is the call, the burden and the vision. Nehemiah hears about what's happened in Jerusalem and he begins to cry out to God, but he's not anybody. You've got to get this because he's not somebody who was previously a leader. The Holy Spirit, come on, he can come and touch your heart. I remember as a young Christian, I'm a nobody. Really, I'm just a long-haired young believer who gets caught by God. And I went to the pastor and said, I read in the Bible where they prayed all night long. Can I use the church building? Can I have a key? I don't think anyone had ever asked for that before, but they gave me a key to the church building. I went in uh, one night and I began to pray in that place. And I'd love to tell you that I went all night long. I took a concordance, which for those of you who don't know what it is, it's a big book that indexes the whole Bible. I took that in my Bible and another pad and a pen and a pillow and a sleeping bag. Obviously, I was expecting to sleep. And, uh, but I began to pray. I don't know how long I went, but I know I went and I did that several times in that period of time. And you go, well, why would you? I wasn't on staff. I wasn't anybody. But you see, God knows where you're going to end up. Listen to me tonight. I don't know who I'm speaking to, but except that I know that whoever you are, God knows where you listen. God knows where you're going to end up. And that's why I remember when I was uh, on staff as a young youth leader and the Holy Spirit began to move on me to pray. I began to walk the streets at night when everybody else had gone to bed. Well, I wasn't married. I began to walk the streets and began to pray. It became my time. The book of Isaiah lit up to me. It was like, to this day, I can turn to so many pages of Isaiah and have those verses speak back to me again. It happened there. I never knew that in a sudden moment I was going to be put in charge of a, a, a youth ministry in the largest church of its time in Australia. And I never had any clue. But I look back and I go, thank God he knew where I was going to end up. If God is stirring you, never dismiss it. If a hunger for worship, if a burden to pray, comes and hears my advice, always respond. 
always that quick. Always say, God, I don't know why you're doing this. I haven't got a clue what it's about, but I'm going to be obedient to you. Nehemiah chapter 1 is the call, the burden, and the vision. Nehemiah chapter 2, he goes to Jerusalem and scopes out, as we'd say, the problem, checks it out. Nehemiah chapter 3, the work begins. Nehemiah chapter 4 is the first opposition to this project. Nehemiah chapter 5, he begins to challenge the builder's mindsets. He says, you're building the house of God and you're living like the pagans around about you. God will challenge your mindset, but he doesn't challenge you to, to criticize you. He challenges you because he wants you to understand we have a different spirit. The first opposition, Nehemiah chapter 6, the first distractions came. If the, I said it a week or so ago, if the devil can't stop you, he'll always try to hinder you. And his chief weapon for hindering you is to get you talking about what somebody else is doing, what some other church is up to, what the family down the road, what other businesses are going through, and get you distracted away from where it is. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 15 says this, it says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elal in 52 days. You go, well, so what? But see, if you and I were writing the book of Nehemiah, that would be all the chapters of Nehemiah there'd be. But there are 13 chapters in Nehemiah. The next chapter, chapter 7, is the list of everybody that was a part of the building. And all the next six chapters, half the book is not about the project. Half the book is not about merely the construction of a wall. Because chapter 6 verse 15 says it's already done. Why is there all this extra? What are we supposed to take out of that lesson there? 13 chapters in Nehemiah, half the book is about the project itself and the other half is about the reason for the wall and what came after the wall gets built. Ezra the scribe turns up and a revival begins to take place amongst these 50,000 people there are living there by the way. And a revival begins to take place amongst these 50,000 people because, you see, it was never about the wall. It was never about brick upon brick, about mortar and construction. No, it was never about a boat. It was never about getting all the animals into the ark. It always was about giving the entire world a new start because it had become so evil that the thoughts of every person, the Bible says, was evil continually. And God said, I don't want to wipe it out. I've got to give them a fresh start. Joseph, it was never about a dream of you being honoured by your family. God said, way after Joseph had died, and his bones were carried by the people. It was always about a nation that was going to be built. God said, I'm going to raise up a people that one day will give birth to the Messiah, the Saviour, not just of the Jews, but the Saviour of the world. See, God's got an eternal plan, and every single step along the way matters. But now all those people are finished and they're gone. We read about them 
as a part of history of the Bible and powerful as it is. But I think now they're gone, but now it's you and I. But you know, listen to me, when you're in history, you don't feel like history's being written. When you're in history, you feel like it's ordinary and it's just you. But beyond all that, it was never about a wall. It was never about a boat. It was never about family honour. Philip, it was never about solving a food problem. It was about getting you out of a crowd. And God sometimes uses ministry desires in our life, things that we feel called to do because his entire goal is to say, I want to get you into my training ground. I want to get you out of the crowd that you think is your limit. I want to bring you into something fresh. It was always about what's on the other side of your obedience. It's about who you're going to influence. It's about who's waiting for a transformed spirit led and empowered you in this season where so many people's conversation is so occupied. And please understand, that's not a criticism. You can come and ask me anything about the season we're in you like. Talk to me about any question you have. I'll gladly engage with you on it. But I pray that that won't be the number one focus of the church of Jesus. I pray that in the midst of all this, we will lift up our eyes and say the fields are wide under harvest. That we will lift up our heart and we will say Jesus is still Lord. He's on the throne and nothing changes. We will look around about us and say in the midst of pressure, there's always opportunity from God. We might be in a prison. We may have restriction around about us. But if we will begin to praise, which is to put our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and to lift Him up, if we will begin to do that, then God can birth a church out of what was our problem because that's what happened in Acts 16 in the Philippian jail when Paul and Silas began to sing and to praise. And the first person that they see converted is someone who's got suicidal ideation, to use the current term. The Philippian jailer who's about to kill himself. And Paul intervenes and says, don't do yourself any harm. And out of that comes a church that's birth that has influence right around that part of what used to be called Asia Minor. And a church gets birth out of that, out of that entire mess. I want to say to you tonight, no matter what your mess is, if you will let God do something great, maybe it's not about that. Maybe it's about what lies on the other side of your endurance and the other side of your persistence and the other side of your faith. And the other side of your God, I give you glory even though I don't know. The most amazing thing to me about Jesus rising from the dead, or one of the most amazing, it's all amazing. But I want you to go and check this out. Do you know after Jesus rises from the dead, he never once mentions the Pharisees. There's no conversation about the people who plotted his downfall, who falsely accused him. He doesn't rise from the dead and go, you know what? Now, now look out. Now I'm going to wreak vengeance on you. Now I'm going to sell everyone. Ha ha. There's no gloating. There's none of that. Jesus never once when he rises from the dead mentions the Romans who drove the nails into his head. Why is that? Because you see, his death on the cross wasn't about what other people did. 
it was always about what was on the other side of the cross and the tomb. Let me give you a couple of scriptures quickly. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. That's what Mardelli was talking about. So that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Jesus' plan was always, I think about this a lot because the Bible doesn't ever talk about the grace of God as though it's some teeny, wincy little, you know, scarce morsel that we have to be careful with. I've been thinking so much about the grace of God, so much about God's grace for our broken and fallen and messed up world. And I've been thinking about that uh, just in the entirety and the enormity of it. How great is God's grace? Well, there's enough grace for you to get saved. I want to identify this person and they may not even be here, I don't know. But someone came to see me this morning after the service. They said, thank you for the message. It really impacted me. And then they said, you know, I gave my yes text a month ago. They said every morning I look forward to getting my Bible verse. I look forward to getting my prayer every day. He said, it kind of like sets up my day. Then he told me some of the backstory and six weeks ago, he was like Paul and Silas. He was in a place where really he had, uh, according to him, where he deserved to be. But, you know, God saw something on the other side of that mess. And he said to me today, he said, you know, this week I got a job. He said, I've got a place to live. He said, I am just so profoundly changed over this last month. See, God always knew that there was something more than what you and I see. And that there are many more. I believe it. I'm, I'm, I'm unashamed. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on the side of going, you know what? I think it's the greatest hour there's ever been for the church. May not be for everyone else, but it is for the church. If we get the right spirit, if we start looking around and saying, who can I reach for Jesus? Because trust me, people everywhere want Jesus right now. I mean, people all the time talk to me and, and, and all professionals and people and all kinds of parts of life and they say, tell me about church. Then I go, then I go, pastor, oh, quick, quick. Did I say something I shouldn't have said? They want to know, and I know lots of you are as well. You know, we had Sebastiano up here to pray in Italian a couple of weeks, what, three or four weeks ago? And during the week after that, he starts getting all these calls and messages from Italy saying, thank you for praying for our country. He did not even know, and I certainly didn't know. We didn't announce it. But there he is praying for his nation of birth, and there's all these people out there that we don't know anything about saying thank you for praying for our country. John 17, verse 20. I don't pray for these alone, Jesus said, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be, may be one as you, Father, are, and are in me, and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe. Think about that a minute. Jesus said, I'm praying for these guys, and then I'm praying for the people that are coming after them. And then he said, listen, when Jesus prayed, his vision was the world. 
that the world may believe. He didn't say, well, I'm hoping just to get a couple. If I can just get a few, they'll be happy. If I can just get a faithful remnant, if I can just get a couple of people to heaven by the skin of their teeth, I'll be just glad I've got one or two. Jesus said that the world may believe. I think we have underestimated the power of the gospel. I really, I'm, I'm hello, I'm spirit-filled, Pentecostal, speaking in tongues, loving God. And sometimes I act like the church is over in the corner somewhere rather. And Jesus began his ministry telling these guys, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. They're all fishermen. Think about it. Acts chapter 1 verse 15 says that there was 120 people gathered in an upper room. And we think 120 is a lot, but back in those days, 120 people was not even a wedding party. Because when they had a wedding, they invited the whole town. You know, I've been to some in India, or I've not been to the wedding, but I've driven past it and chatted. I got a photo of me with the groom. He looked like, sheesh. Like, I'd love to show you the pic. It's like... There's me, little old Jeff, and here's this guy, and he's brocaded and embroidered and turbanized and, and all the rest of that stuff. And th there was thousands of people at this wedding, you know, and I've yelled out the window in Hyderabad that the groom was riding around the white horse, you know, and you were there, I think, weren't you, mum? And I'm yelling out the window to this guy, and the, and the mother of the groom looks over at me and goes, like, yeah, that's my boy. Uh, and we think 120 people, but can I say 120 people, nobody thought much about it. Day one, no one thought much. And day two, no one thought much. And day three and four and five and six and seven and eight and nine and ten. And then Acts 2, chapter 1 takes place. They're all together in one accord in the upper room. And it says, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. There's a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind filled the whole place where they were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues of fire that sat upon each one of them, and they all began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And 3,000 people that day give their life to Christ. So what's on the other side of your obedience? I believe God wants to tear down. Please, team, come. I believe God wants to tear down walls of complacency and indifference, hurt and disappointment that blind us. I feel like God wants to almost say, come on, church, you're my body, you're my mouthpiece, you're my voice. Will you speak for me? Will you speak for me? What would he say? Well, Revelation tells us the spirit and the bride say come not just the Holy Spirit I think half the time the Spirit's saying come and the church is saying well not your kind or not now can you wait till we're through all this but the Spirit and the Bride say come let all who hear say come there are people waiting on the other side of a new you I felt, you know, in prayer this week that there were people in the service, whether you're online or in the building, and you need to forgive somebody or you need to rebuild trust. People have hurt you and so you go, how do I, how do I ever find that 
innocent place again. Or maybe it's just that life has hammered you and in that hammering, you've lost confidence. Come on, let's be honest. Anybody here in this last year and a half not lost confidence? Because if you haven't, you're better than me, that's for sure. I, I put my hand up and go, oh God, there's been times when I thought, Lord, hello? Come on. Maybe you need to rebuild confidence. There's people on the other side of you. I'm not asking you to go out and be an evangelist. I'm asking you to reach out and love people. I am asking you to say, God, I'll put your purpose at the top of my agenda. And God, more than that, God, I want to I want to throw open the doors of my life and say, God, what could you do? What could you do? Let me finish with this story. We're going to sing that song again in a minute, New Wine. So just come. Come, Anne-Marie. Come, Malou. D.L. Moody was a young Christian. If I got the story right, he was listening to the preaching of this famous preacher who had crowds of people come. This preacher said this, he said, the world is yet to see what God can do with a person wholly surrendered to God, completely surrendered. And D.L. Moody in that crowd, just a nobody, said to himself, by the grace of God, I'll be that man. They say that Dion Moody won more people to Christ personally than any human that's ever lived. All because in the moment of rubble, in the moment of mess, in the moment of who am I, he simply said, God, I'll give you who I am. Can we stand together? Come on, let's sing this song. Make it our prayer tonight to the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. In the crushing in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil, I now surrender. You are breaking new ground. So I'll yield to you and to your careful hand. When I try. Thank you. 